0: to Edge of the Rabbit Hole. I'm author and ghost historian Mike Ricksecker. With me as always is my co-hostess Vanessa Hogel and down in the chat room our chat shenanigator Shauna shaking everything up. We have a special Star Trek episode up for you tonight. So we have uh, writer, director, uh, producer Mark Cushman with us. He has uh, written basically the um, all of the history on uh, Star Trek, the series, uh, fantastic book that's out there, book series that's out there right now. Uh, These are the voyages. So we're uh, very happy to have Mark with us tonight. Uh, Vic Manana is also going to be with us. He's uh, running a little bit behind, but uh, uh, and Vic is a part of the uh, Star Trek Continues web series. He's a fantastic actor and voice talent. So, but well, we're going to start here with Mark. Mark, uh, thanks for joining us tonight.
1: It's a pleasure. Hello, Mike. Hello, Vanessa. We were chatting before the show, so this is hello number
0: two. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so um, Mark, we'll just kind of start at the beginning here. You know, going way back, I, mean, I know every everybody's really familiar with, with Star Trek. You know, we all have our, our memories. I remember watching mm-hmm. it at like 11, 11 o'clock p.m., uh, midnight as a kid. Um, oh Because yes. that's when it would come on. Uh, where I was at in Massachusetts at the time, after watching stuff like. Um, you know, whether it was a Twilight Zone or Alfred Hitchcock Presents, it was always Star Trek right after there. Um, So where did this get started for you, and how did you come to end up writing this, um, basically, you know, the all-inclusive history of Star Trek?
1: Well, it got started for me as it did for you and everybody else watching the show. And I was watching it when I was a kid. When I was about 10 uh, is when it came on NBC, and... um, So I caught a lot of the episodes uh, in the first run, and then I was watching it in repeats in the 1970s. And that was one of the things that inspired me to become a writer. I wanted to write for television. And I thought Star Trek was the best written show on television. And I found out later why, after I met Gene Roddenberry and Dorothy Fontana and Bob Justman and all the people who were... Uh, doing the show as producers and and rewriting the scripts and giving out the assignments. And I, I found out the magic formula they had, why that show just felt to me as as a youngster, to be better written. I've never used that word before, youngster. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to describe myself as 10. Uh, better written than, than say, Ironside or, or the other shows that were on television at that time. It, it just felt like it meant something. And it's because Gene Roddenberry was always wanting every episode to have a very strong theme, uh, individual from the overall theme of the series. And so he would press the writers to come up with things worth talking about. And, uh, and you pick that up when you're young, even even though you don't know what it is. You're picking it up that this means something. So after I, I came to L.A. and started writing, uh, I I was working for a company that was doing a special on Star Trek for television in the L.A. area. And uh, I remember the, uh, the producer came in and said, okay, who, who knows anything about Star Trek? And I raised my hand, <laughs> and nobody else really did. Uh, I mean, everybody knew Star Trek. Everybody watched it, but I... Sure. I watched it religiously, and uh, and so he said, okay, you're going down to Paramount next week to interview Gene Roddenberry, and it was, oh, my God. Wow. Uh, oh, <laughs> That's geez. a real stomach. <laughs> stomach is doing somersaults and all of that type of stuff, and, and I did that. I interviewed him, and, and I asked him, um, I read a book uh, called The Making of Star Trek, which came out when the show was being made, and it was mostly about the show getting on the air, and uh, it had a lot of memos in it and things of that nature, and I just thought it was fantastic. Uh, and and I said to him, you know, did you keep those type of memos for all the episodes? And he said, yeah. And there was like 45 boxes filled wow. with these things. And and I said, you know, that I think would make a great book, kind of a, a follow up to the, the book that came out in 1968. And uh, and he said, OK, go ahead and do it. Uh, Well, it took me decades because, uh, first of all, I was very busy as a screenwriter. And uh, secondly, it was just so much material, thousands and thousands of memos and budget reports and shooting schedules and ratings and everything else. And I wanted to get all that into the book. I also needed to interview everybody. So Gene was my first interview. And then I ended up interviewing everybody else who worked behind the camera and in front of the camera and so forth. And uh, so 20, 30 years later, I started publishing these, uh, these are the voyages books. Uh, volume one is season one, and then season two, and then season three, each has its own book, which are like 700 pages each
2: Good. filled with
1: memos and filled with all this stuff. And, um, and then you get into, uh, now we're doing books on, uh, the movies, and uh, and so on. So uh, you, you read these books and you feel like you're in a room with Roddenberry and everybody else, because not only because of the interviews I did, but also because of the, the memos that they would write to each other and write to the network and the studio heads on every episode they were producing. And all the challenges in making these episodes, and what Gene was trying to do with the script, and what he was trying to say, and what NBC was trying to stop him from saying, and things like that. Well, I cut all these memos together, and you feel like you're sitting in the room hearing them argue about it. Time. <laughs> oh, wow. So these memos
0: are actually in the book.
1: Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. And 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 so you you you're it's, you're not uh, dependent on somebody's memory from 30 years later, 40 years later, whenever I was interviewing them. Uh, but you're, you're hearing them communicating to each other over each episode. You know, how can we do this? And NBC saying, you can't do that. And, and, and on and on. And then poor Bobby Justman, who was the line producer. How am I going to get this film? How are we going to do this space battle? You know, and wow. how are we going to afford to do this and things of that nature? So, for anybody who knows the, the series and wonders why this episode's better or this episode does this, it's all in there right from the people who are making it while they were making it.
3: Wow. Now I have a quick question for you just because you touched on it. I wanted to ask it anyway, but you touched on it. Uh, Star Trek, to me, from my memory of it, and I haven't seen it in many moons, but they were responsible for breaking molds and leaning people towards certain social cues and trying to break stereotypes. Was there any infighting between the cast and the network in regards to that?
1: Not the cast, but between uh, Gene Roddenberry, the creator and executive producer and the network. Mm -hmm. Um, Fortunately, they were on NBC and NBC was uh, a little more um, experimental than Mm -hmm. the other two networks. Uh, One year before Star Trek went on, NBC put on a series called I Spy, which I've written a book about as well. And that starred Robert Cope and Bill Cosby. So that was the first show to put a white and a black actor together on equal status on prime time. Before that, we had Rochester on the Jack Benny show. He was his butler and chauffeur. And you had Amos and Andy, which most black people didn't care for because it was very stereotypical. Mm-hmm. And Beulah, who was a black maid working in white, white people's houses and things of that nature. So when I Spy came along, it really opened up the doors for interracial casting. And one year later, Star Trek comes on with the first ensemble interracial cast. You got an Asian, you got a Russian, you got a Vulcan, you got a, a black communication officer. And so this really changed the face of television literally now beyond that Vanessa they're doing stories that featured among other things the first interracial kiss on network television yes and 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 that was between Kirk and Uhura because there were other interracial kisses on (laughs) Star Trek between Kirk and a green-skinned woman and things of that nature Uh, but they're telling stories that weren't allowed on other TV shows at that time. They would do a story about Vietnam by having it take place on another planet. They would do an interracial show where an alien was half black and half white, but racist against other people in his species because they're white on the other side of the face. And things of that nature, they were doing stories about sexism, about religion, uh, about everything you can imagine, when other shows couldn't do that and that's why gene roddenberry created star trek because he wanted to tell these type of stories but you couldn't do that in the 1960s
3: no you absolutely couldn't and women and um, especially uh, not not just to be a woman on that show but to be a black woman on that show and to have her in a position of power right. that really set us that 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 put a statement out there that said this is what it should be
1: well, Nichelle Nichols uh, told me, and, and she's tell, told other people, but, but I, have, I interviewed her for my books, uh, that she was going to leave the show halfway through because uh, even though it was a terrific for a, a young black actress, uh, she aspired for other things. She had a nightclub act that she did and so forth, and her parts weren't always that big. So she was going to leave, and she was at a fundraising event with Martin Luther King. And he came up to her, you know. She was all uh, impressed to be in the same room with him. He comes up to her and he says, "Me and my kids, we never miss the show. You know, I spy Star Trek. Those are the two shows we watch because we can see a black person up there on the screen." And she and she said, "Well, thank you, Mr. King, Reverend King, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll be leaving the show." And and he. Basically, you cannot. He just gave her a lecture for about ten minutes. You cannot leave that show. He said, "Don't you understand that this is one of the few shows on television where black people can watch this, where black children can watch this, and see somebody who looks like them doing something different?" And you're you're an astronaut. You're in outer space. You're an officer. You're you're on the bridge in the future. And my kids look at this and they see a potential future for themselves, and you cannot take that away from them. And so she stayed with the show.
3: That is oh, that's wonderful. Fantastic. Wow! That what a story! My goodness, that almost made me cry. <laughs> that
1: really
2: that,
0: did. No, it, it's it's well, that, impressive that the impact how, Star Trek has had.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exa- that, thank you, Mike. I was just saying that. You, that shows you because now we can look back and not really appreciate it because to that degree, because we're not seeing that when you're flipping the channel, there's nothing else on TV that looks anything like it. So, the, you know, and right after uh, Star Trek came on and, and I Spy, then suddenly you've got Greg Morris on Mission Impossible, and you've got Room 222, and you got Clarence Williams III on Mod Squad, all within a year or two. But that's what I said, it changed the face of television. The one-two blow of I Spy and Star Trek pretty much did it, and now there was casting that we didn't see uh, before. There there were blacks on television, there were Asians on television, but they were playing stereotypical parts. They weren't playing doctors, they weren't playing roles like that. They were playing Japanese soldiers in World War II, or they were playing boxers, if it was a black guy, uh, things of that nature. So this really changed it. But more importantly, it it gave us these themes that we weren't seeing on other television shows. And the other thing is it showed us a lot of technology that uh, kids watching Star Trek grew up to invent the stuff that they were seeing on Star Trek every week. The Bluetooth, you see it Mm -hmm. on Star Trek in your ear and Spock's ear. Uh, The the Kirk's communicator became the prototype for the cell phone uh the uh spock's library computer station became the prototype for the uh the PC and the internet. And so so many things even people who don't watch star trek uh what few there may be who have never seen it it's it's affected their life.
0: Well, and that's something that I wanted to imaginable. Yeah, and that's something I wanted to get into a little bit here was it um was it Star Trek inspiring uh you know the younger generation to go ahead and invent these things, or were these things going to be invented already? I kind of leaned toward the latter
1: well, of course they eventually they would have come about, and eventually the the interracial casting on television would have happened anyway. But the thing is is whoever is first gets it moving and so how many more years would it have been before we might have had some of these things? if he didn't have the, the kids watching it. The thing is, the the guy who uh, uh, invented the cell phone for Motorola said that he based it on Kirk's communicator. Nice. Uh, Bill Gates wow. has talked about how Spock's library computer station gave him a lot of the ideas that then he brought forward uh, and became the Internet, and became all this stuff. It would have happened eventually, but but the, the initial ideas were sparked. And by the way, if Star Trek didn't invent a lot of these things. I mean, the transporter was first seen in the late 1950s in a movie called The Fly.
0: Yeah, when do we and get probably- in our transporters, exactly. by the way? <laughs> yeah,
1: but should, but, but, what, uh, but what Star Trek did was it was bringing it into your living room every week. Yeah. And that has a great impact. How many people have seen The Fly with David Hedison compared to people who have seen Star Trek? Oh, absolutely. Very, very
0: yeah.
3: true. And I mean, for people of color, I- I think Star Trek was so important because without Star Trek, we might have never had the Jeffersons. We might have never had, or at least not as quickly, Good Times. That's right. Two shows that I grew up with and absolutely adored. Good Times was one of my favorite shows ever, simply because it showed it showed you know a, an entire cast of color, the struggles they go through, and how they rose above it. Yeah, those first steps are important in making sure that something like that happens. That's just I mean a little southern girl, that's me. That that was what I looked up to.
1: Right. And and you know, it's it it, it opened the door. Now, a lot of other shows walked through that door, a lot of other actors walked through that door. But uh for it to be the show that was at the forefront opening it at that moment in time. I mean, what would it be if if that change had been delayed by even 10 years?
3: Exactly. You know,
1: I mean, the 1960s, and I was just a little kid in the 60s, but it was just an explosion of ideas that we're still feeling the the ripples from. And uh, so, with the Jeffersons, you know, it came along in 1972, mm-hmm. I think. I think so. Yeah, uh, yeah and All in the Family uh, with Norman Lear was one year ahead of it in '71. Uh, but we would we have seen All in the Family if it hadn't been for shows like Star Trek, because because again, Gene Roddenberry was tackling issues that the networks weren't wanting to do. But they didn't receive a ton of letters when they did these episodes on Star Trek. You know, uh, in 1966, uh, October 66, they, uh, like the fifth episode that aired on NBC called The Enemy Within, Kirk is divided by a transporter malfunction. And there's the, the cool, intelligent Kirk, and there's the animal Kirk who's roaming around on the ship. And they look alike, And the animal is is impersonating the other one, who's still in command, but he he gets uh, Kirk's yeoman, uh, Janice Rand, goes into her quarters, and she comes in there, and he starts coming on to her, and she doesn't want to say no because it's the captain, but he's not acting like himself. He gets her on the floor, and he's trying to rape her. Mm -hmm. Now, this is in October of 1966 on the NBC television network. And in my book, you see the the memos from NBC, very worried about this script. And you see Roddenberry telling them, no, 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 he's not gonna try to rape her, he's just getting a little forward with her. Well, she has to scratch his face, she has to push him off of her, all these things. And the ratings, it was winning its time slot during the first half hour, and the minute that attempted rape took place, it dropped to number three in the ratings. People jumped up and switched channels because they had kids watching, Mm -hmm. you know? And NBC sent a a letter over to Roddenberry saying, we will not rerun that episode, and don't you ever do that to us again. So it was a big deal. But then, you know, the letters didn't come in. The ratings dropped right away, but they didn't get a lot of letters complaining about it. And so they kept pushing the envelope. Well, by the time you get to All in the Family and the Jeffersons and everything else, the door is now open, Mm -hmm. and it's allowing these shows to come through or else they may have been delayed five, six, seven years. And we're much older at that point, you and me. And, you know, it's not having the same impact on us that it actually had because we saw them earlier in our lives.
3: Exactly. They set a precedent for how we looked at things. And even with Spock, you know, you're talking about somebody that was very, very just, well, he was Spock. I don't need to put it any other way. But there were episodes that showed this robotic person having a, a, you know, an empathetic side.
1: And One of my favorite episodes, uh, coming right from what you just said, Vanessa, and I hope I didn't interrupt, but you, no. you, you, you popped this into my mind, is uh, Dorothy Fontana, D.C. Fontana, who was a wonderful person. We just lost her a few months ago. She wrote the foreword to my last These uh, of book that came out last year. Uh, she wrote um, for that show. She was a story editor. And the reason she had to say D.C. Fontana is because they weren't hiring women to write action adventure back then. So she had to use her initials in order to get in to the uh, the job.
2: Right.
1: Not Roddenberry. He would have given it to her anyway, but as far as the networks are concerned and so forth. But she wrote this wonderful episode called This Side of Paradise, where Spock falls in love with Jill Ireland because he is shot with spores from a plant, which basically get him to let his hair down. He just relaxes. And he's not... He's not uh, Uh, suppressing his emotions and so he falls in love with her and it's Kirk's problem to try to figure out how to get his first officer back and his other crew members back and he succeeds and I won't tell the plot but but, (laughs) but he succeeds in the end and this very poignant moment at the end of the episode where Spock is very quiet and you know he's always serious but he's he's almost seems a little depressed and Kirk looks over at him and says Mr. Spock you know how, how are you? And he just says, Captain, for the first time in my life, I was happy. And, oh, my God, you talked about crying a moment ago. I mean, I, I, I can't say that line without getting tears in my eyes because it's such a powerful episode that Spock actually was able to feel happiness for a short while but had to give it up.
3: Showing happiness through vulnerability.
1: Yeah, and and that character was so important to so many people because it represented what so many of us go through in our lives, the battle between trying to be logical and trying to deal with our emotions and trying to be professional and, and teenagers, especially all the confusion they're going through and the inner conflict about who they're supposed to be and what they're being told and, uh, and not wanting to be embarrassed and so forth. And here's this character on television that kind of demonstrates all that for us and uh and i couldn't think of another character on another show that that i felt like well he's feeling what i'm feeling when i'm 15 and 16 and watching those things but spock i could relate to
3: exactly it was a power it was a powerful episode i remember that one i saw it on rerun but i remember that
1: one yeah Oh, you weren't even born when it came out. Yeah. <laughs> no,
3: I'm, I'm older than this you is think. True. I'm older than you think. But yeah, and but I saw it on rerun. I've seen every one of them on rerun. <laughs> so. Part
1: part of the fun of my books is that each each episode has its own chapter.
0: Could you they sit down fit. with your book and watch episode by episode and use your yeah, book I as I was like show it. notes? Okay.
1: Yeah, when I was writing it, and I tell everybody to do the same thing. I mean, not write it. You got it. You could you could just pick it up and read it. Right. But I say, read a chapter once a night, or you know, each night, or or once a week, or twice a week, whatever. Read a chapter and watch that episode, and you're going to see it in a whole new light. It doesn't spoil it for you in any way, but but you find out by seeing the, the excerpts from the and everything else, you find out why they wanted to do that episode and what they were trying to communicate to us in doing those episodes. And I also have a a tour guide for each episode on the set. Uh somebody who was in the episode talking about what it was like filming that episode and um and so forth. So it's it's uh like like for the episode we were just talking about, Leonard Nimoy wrote a letter to Dorothy Fontana after he read the script and he said uh, this worries me. You know, I've been working so hard to create this character and find this character, and now we're doing an episode where we're going to throw all that out the window and I'm going to fall in love, and, and I think this could be very dangerous. And uh, he was very nervous about it. And then uh, after it aired, the mail starts coming in, and I've got some fan letters in there that came in like the next week, and people just loved it. And so now that they have a whole other way they can go with this character,
0: how many uh, how many episodes into the series was that?
1: That was in the latter part of the first season. So okay. when they were filming that episode, the show had just been on the network for maybe a month or two. Maybe about eight episodes had been shown. That was about the 25th, 26th episode that they filmed. But, you know, they had filmed 13 or 14 or 15 before the show even premiered.
0: Okay, so they're, so they're, they're more a familiar with, with Spock being a, a more staunch type of a character before that little bit was introduced, because he does have a human side to him.
1: Yes. yeah. You know, a lot of people think, oh, the Vulcans don't have emotion. No, they didn't. I mean, we're talking about a fictional character, but, right. <laughs> but uh, Roddenberry designed it to where they do have emotion. They've just learned to repress it, not show it. Well, we see that. With people we know, I mean, we all know people who try to hide their emotions and try to hold it in. And especially when you get into corporate America and, you know, you you know, and and politicians and things of that nature. Uh, Trump is the exception to the rule, of course, but most politicians try not to express emotion and uh, you don't know what they're thinking. It's, It's like you're playing poker. You know, it's a very guarded expression and you can't know if you can believe half of what's being said to you. So people are like that. And uh, and Spock kind of represents that inner conflict, that battle of do I show what I'm feeling or do I hide it?
0: Right.
3: That's a battle that goes on today. Yeah. I I suffer from it myself. You know, I mean, it's, it's. It's it's. it's nice to see that there that there are options and how and how he put that out there and, and I, you don't really see it now on, on tv everything no. is, is so i don't know it just feels so false and the, to me that did not feel false i so
0: have
1: that, trouble that, that watching most uh, yeah I, I have trouble watching most uh, dramatic television now because the characters seem so shallow so superficial Yes. I mean, they're, they're having more of a relationship with their mobile devices than with right. the other characters on screen. Now, comedies, of course, then go the other direction and they're way overboard and over the top. But you don't see a lot of drama where on television anyway where you're seeing people showing you what's going on inside of them. They've all become kind of Spock-like in many ways. Spock was a much more engaging character because of the struggle that was going on, and we knew about that struggle.
0: Do you watch any of the newer Star Trek? Like, there's the new Picard series that's out right now. Do you watch any of that?
1: Uh, not yet. I okay. haven't seen that one. I have not seen Discovery. Um, I, I I wrote for Next Generation briefly, mm-hmm. and uh, and I went in and and pitched stories to Voyager and um, Enterprise. So they they would call me in, and I would see the pilots. You know, okay. They would screen the pilot. And then they would have us come in and pitch story ideas uh, and things of that nature. So, And then I would go home and I would watch the shows periodically. Um, Next Generation I watched quite a bit of because I was working on that show for a while. But uh, uh, none of them really grabbed me like the first one. Uh, The first one was the most engaging to me because the characters were more flawed. And when you're a writer writing drama, you want flawed characters. You know, Kirk was not perfect. No. (laughs) He he was very insecure. I mean, you challenged him. He would throw you off his bridge and everything else. He made a lot of mistakes. He would go into his quarters with McCoy and say, Bones, what do I do? Everybody on the bridge is looking at me and and expecting me to come up with a solution, and what if I'm wrong? And then, of course, Spock had his internal conflicts, and McCoy had his prejudices, especially against Vulcans. And so these were not perfect characters, but that's what made them so much fun to watch, and fun to write for, because of the conflicts between them. By the time we got to Next Generation, and I didn't write for the original show, I was a kid, but I wrote about it later, and and lived in these memos. But by the time Next Generation came along, and I called Gene and asked if I could come in and pitch, and I pitched a story to him called Sarek, which was uh, made in the third season. And uh, But I was having a little trouble with that show, because all the characters liked each other. Well, and they I... all seemed... Perfect. So I went in and pitched a story about what would happen if a Vulcan went through senility. And what if that senility, because they're telepathic, affected the people who are around him? You could have a scene where Riker could go in and start jumping down Picard's throat because it's like putting itching powder down his pants. And Jean said, go write it. So, you know, you're you're looking for ways to get the characters to be more engaging, less perfect. That was the challenge
0: with that show. I
3: got to tell you, that's friggin' brilliant.
0: Well, I I believe Vic has joined us. Vic, you there? Yes, I am. I am so sorry,
4: you guys. It's (laughs) all
0: right. It's all right. Vic Manana has joined us, uh, actor and voice talent. He plays Captain Kirk in the Star Trek Continues web series. So, Vic, uh, we're really happy to have you with us. Uh, My
4: pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me join Vic, we were
0: just
1: talking about the difference between the original Star Trek and the other shows, and I was talking about how much more engaging Kirk, Spock, McCoy were than, say, Picard and Riker. Now, other people might feel differently. They may prefer one of the other shows, but maybe you can just jump into the conversation and tell us your take on that. Absolutely. Well, what I have learned over the
4: years of meeting different Star Trek fans is that so many Star Trek fans are are in love with primarily with the one, the Star Trek that they, that they first discovered when they were young. Um, you know, depends on when you were born. <laughs> and, you know, if you, if you were a, a little kid or even a teenager during Next Generation, you know, that's your Trek, that's your jam. Uh, and, you know, and, and then for some it's Voyager, for some it's Enterprise, for some it's Deep Space Nine. But I think just about everybody loves the original series. Um, and, and I think that's a testament to the quality of it. And, you know, I always love to tease next generation fans. And I say, we well, realize if there was no TOS, there would be no next generation. So, you know, they, they really started something amazing with the original series, but I was listening to what, to what Mark said, and he's right on the money. You know, there is no story without conflict. And, uh, if everybody just gets along, <laughs> you know what I mean? If everybody just gets along with each other all the time, there's really, there's really no conflict, and it's, it's hard to find a story there. Um, so that was, a, that, you know, and the action-adventure uh, element of the original series, I think, was kind of lost to a degree in the subsequent series as well.
3: Now, I, I think that that's absolutely accurate. I do have a question for both of you guys, um, and it, you touch on it right there about the conflict um, to, to me, it, everything is is so stale now that um, that particular conflict was so important because it didn't seem to, to involve a formula. Whereas so many shows, um, TV shows, movies, everything out there right now seem to have a formula that they have to follow. And I don't feel like the original Star Trek had to follow that same formula. It was kind of a from the hip. What what are we feeling at this moment, and how should we do it? Would you say that's accurate,
1: Vic? You want me Mark, to start? Mark, you want to
4: take that first? Go ahead.
1: Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be brief, I'm anxious to hear what Vic has to say. Um, well, of course, every every show has a format, and and uh, Star Trek was basically uh, taking the uh, the aircraft. Carrier Enterprise and putting it in outer space a uh, Captain Horatio Hornblower in outer space but its format was wide open uh, Which is what you're not seeing on these other shows uh, You're not just a doctor dealing with the patients who are brought in. You're not a cop out solving the same type of crime I mean every law and order begins the same with a body being found and then Beaten down the path trying to find out who did it and so on and so on with Star Trek You can go anywhere all these planets, all these different civilizations out there. And, and so it's got a much more elastic format to do. And what I mentioned earlier in the show is one thing Gene Roddenberry was so important to him is that you know, Star Trek had an overall theme that man is going to survive and we're going to go out and we're going to learn to live together and so forth. But he wanted every episode to have a theme of its own so it would stand apart from the other episodes this one's talking about racism this one's talking about religion this one's talking about uh, a planet that's going through what we went through during the vietnam war stuff like that so it can go into directions that other shows can't go vic what 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 do you think
4: i agree completely um i was, what i was going to say was <clears throat> along those same lines a lot of tv shows and <clears throat> <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of TV shows now don't really have much deeper point than just you know a crime to be solved or a drug dealer or car chases or uh, you know uh, sex and violence and see the underbelly uh, kind of you know stuff. And and Star Trek had a nobility to it. Um, it wasn't just they weren't just great stories. They had a theme. They had a point to make. You know they they had a statement they wanted to make, like you said, mark. and i and I believe that that's exactly why we're still in love with this show sixty years later. Um, we're not still talking about Star Trek because of the costumes. <laughs> we're, not with, we're not still in love with Star Trek because of the masterful special effects or or the uh, incredible sets. I mean, we're still talking about Star Trek because the stories that they told are as relevant and grounded in humanity now as they were then. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, definitely. A lot of stuff nowadays is lazy writing. It's, you know, it's, it's cheap action. It's cheap, uh, seductive, uh, you know, kind of stuff that, that is, is about as shallow as, you know, the kiddie pool in your backyard. I mean, just, it doesn't have any any depth at all. <laughs> you don't walk away from it thinking about it for weeks. You know what I mean? You yeah. don't. You don't. You don't. You don't walk around thinking about it and dwelling on it for weeks and weeks after because it made such a a huge impact on your on you know on your mind and your common sense and the way you see a particular. I, idea or issue. And, and I think Star Trek was incredibly unique in that way.
0: Yeah, well, on that note, let me ask you guys something here. So um, and Star Trek did have that really deep interpersonal, um, those deep interpersonal relationships, you know, between the characters. You're talking characters that uh, many are, are aliens to each other. They're really extraterrestrials. And with, with our channel here, we deal a lot with you know, the supernatural, the paranormal, but also um, you know, with different, alien and extraterrestrial theories so is there something that we can learn from star trek here when we start making that first contact with extraterrestrials that are out there today
4: well i would i would if i may mark um i would say that uh i think it's a misnomer to to assume you know (laughs) i i hate to channel my my uh inner i can't remember the movie it was i don't think it was independence day um oh no it was contact okay yeah um, contact, Yeah, god i love that film good and there movie. was a great line in it there was a line where somebody said um why is it that that the that the position of the egghead is always that aliens would be benign you know why 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 is it you know and and then there are other people that just are, are frightened of what they don't know in fact, even right. Captain Kirk said you know something about you know um the only you know the only the only thing to be afraid of are things that that we don't know, and those are just people we haven't met yet or just don't know anything about there's no reason to be afraid of them um I think that Star Trek's position was there's no reason to believe that that first contact whenever and wherever it is would be a a source of panic or, uh, or, uh, global, uh, destruction. Um, it makes for a great movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> it makes for a great war of the worlds or independence day kind of thing. But, um, but I think that Star Trek taught us that you can, we, they can, we can venture out into the galaxy. And when we meet other races, there is absolutely no reason to believe that the, that the contact cannot be positive And, uh,
1: and productive for both. And, you know, one of the interesting things they they would do on that show, and there were a couple episodes that touched on this, is that the aliens are actually afraid of us because (laughs) they've been monitoring our television, you know, and things (laughs) of that nature. And uh, there was one episode called Spectre of the Gun, uh, uh-huh. The Mokotians, uh, I believe they were called uh, yeah. uh didn't want the Enterprise approaching their planet. Uh, but Kirk's orders were to establish uh, communication. And um, and so when he beamed down with the landing party, they chose images in Kirk's mind to serve as their punishment and their execution. And they were whisked back to Tombstone uh, for, for a gunfight at the OK Corral. And even though they still look like themselves wearing their Star Trek uniforms, they're wearing old-fashioned guns, but all the other characters are seeing them as the Clantons. And uh, Kirk's even saying, touch this material. Does it? Does this feel right to you? And he says, yeah, it feels like what you always wear, Ike. You know, and stuff like that. <laughs> but but what was cut out of that episode was in the – we find out that the reason the Melkoshans didn't want the contact is because they were monitoring television from Earth – which had taken a couple hundred years to get to them. So they were basically watching 1950s and 60s TV westerns and all the shoot 'em ups Oh, wow. And they're seeing this very wow, violent...
4: Wow, I never knew that
1: before. Yeah, they're seeing this, because you haven't read my third book. <laughs> they're seeing this very violent uh, race yeah. that's now uh, established the, the ability to travel through space. So they are fearing us because of our violent past. And that was something Kirk had to deal with, and he had to prove to them that we're not that way anymore. And so uh, to get to your question, Mike, and I'm totally serious when I say this. I think uh, we have been contacted many, many times in the past, yes. but I think when yeah. it's actually out in the open, and when we have that time when there's the actual meeting face-to-face it's probably going to be because of all the various Star Treks because if they've been monitoring our signals and you know they have, mm-hmm. isn't it nice that there's at least one show out there that depicts humanity as something other than drug dealing uh killers right. <laughs> you know?
0: very very, very true absolutely. let's
1: just hope exactly. they're not watching our news channels then we're in trouble <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: definitely, definitely
4: and you know i if if you don't if you don't mind, Mike, I'd like to make sure. a shameless plug for my series.
0: Yes, go for it. Uh,
4: you know there have been dozens and dozens, probably more than that uh Star Trek fan productions over the years that that fans have made just out of love and and uh, passion for star Trek. but um you know a lot of most of them are you know they're they're just they're they're fun the the, the fans mean well but but they're not necessarily professionals when it comes to writing a story or crafting a story or uh, or acting the story or producing and shooting and editing the story and uh, when i started star trek continues my intention was to make episodes as much like the original series as i could possibly make them and that meant telling those kind of stories <clears throat> because anybody can can build sets I mean, go to home depot and buy a bunch of lumber and Nails and paint build sets, and anybody can buy fabric and make costumes. But that's not what made Star Trek. Star Trek. It wasn't flipping open communicators. It wasn't beaming down. It wasn't firing phasers. It wasn't fighting the Klingons. It were these. It was these stories about, you know, in, in general, the human condition and challenges that we face, and moral quandaries and ethical questions and social issues and. So when I when we started Star Trek Continues, I wanted to tell those kind of stories. And as soon as you set the bar that high, you know that's that's a big challenge. So yeah, I have to I have to say I was
0: impressed. I, I watched yeah I, I watched the first episode uh, the other night. And I I actually was not aware that Star Trek Continues was out there. And then um, when we had you guys coming on, I was like, I have to check this out. And you know for everything that you said about you know lumber and building the set you guys did an amazing job recreating the enterprise i was really impressed but well
4: thank you you're, thank you're you. welcome
0: but yeah that first episode with apollo and you brought back the original actor um and in the quandary that you know you set for him and his character and you know the relationship there with kirk and kirk trying to trust him a little bit and give him a little bit of rope and you know right it's, it was really really interesting right. the the way yeah you, and
4: the theme of that the theme of that episode was the power of self-sacrifice yes that yeah, instead the of everybody end,
0: looking
4: yeah. out for the, everybody looking out for themselves and looking out for number one you know and and this this uh, apollo thinking all his whole life thinking that the only way for him to to gain life energy and 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 life force is by being worshiped <laughs> and then to find out that self-sacrifice and giving yourself for the betterment of humanity around you could actually be a source of life energy. And if I may, Mike, that was our very first episode. And I I would love you to please check out the rest of them because Mark will tell you, everyone gets better than the last. We just got better and better with our storytelling and our production. And, you know, I want to say one thing about the sets. I've told people that have come to visit our studio. In fact, we've got an open house down at our studio uh, next month, March 21st. I'm going to be down there uh, in Kingsland, Georgia, and people can come and walk through the sets and take pictures and, and see where we shot our series. And you can go to neutralzonestudios.com to find out information about that. But what I tell people as I'm walking them through the sets is this. We built these sets as accurate as we possibly could. So that you could forget about them. Wow. So that, yeah. so that you could look around as soon as the screen came up, you could look around and for the first 30 seconds, you're going, Oh my God, this looks just like the original. It does. And it you really believe does. that you are there. And then your mind gives, gives us the invitation to tell you a story. You know, now you're giving us permission to tell you a story you make the, the sets are just a backdrop at the end of the day right and you know if you watch the original star trek series they would redress the sets and throw things up on the wall that you knew didn't belong there from the last episode <laughs> but it didn't matter because the story was the point and um, and we made we made our our sets and our costumes and props and everything as accurate as we could so that you could immediately forget them and give us permission to tell you an endearing story
3: now we have um we have somebody in the chat uh, grand old folks Betty Lange, I believe um, asking where this show can be seen I need to know that for myself as yeah. well Would I you, do you ha- tell us
0: yeah go ahead mark oh, my God. go ahead Vic I do have all the links down in the description but go ahead Vic star Trek continues
4: dot com okay that simple okay. com. we have let me just tell you guys all you listeners and you as well um, We have created eleven full-length episodes that pick up where the original Star Trek was canceled, without missing a beat. And we finish the five-year mission and leave the Enterprise and the crew and and all the all the cast we so love right where they were when Star Trek the Motion Picture picks them up.
3: Wow! So our
4: series perfectly, perfectly fills the space between the cancellation of the original show in 69 and the release of the motion picture in 79. And I got to tell you, I know I'm partial, but it's beautiful. It is beautiful. And we've got over 10 million viewers now and, and people write us every day saying, Oh my God, I just sobbed through your episodes because I felt like I discovered 11 more episodes that were locked in a vault somewhere for 50 years.
0: Yeah, and I'm, so, I'm definitely going to be watching the rest same. because I was really impressed by that first one. I mean, it, I mean, you're right. It's just like you're right there back on, on the enterprise. I mean, the, the, Quality is, you know, it's a higher definition for <laughs> as far as film quality. But the thing that amazed me is you like you captured the essence of that, you know, 1960s, you know, old Thank style you. Star Trek. It was, you know, even the special effects, even though, you know, it's it's still modern. It still harkens back to all those old special effects, too. Which Absolutely. Uh, we use
4: computers to make it to make the effects. But we made them exactly like the original because right. you don't fix what it broke.
0: Yeah, it's, you know? it's just a seamless transition. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm no. going to have to watch that. it. Oh, well, Doug,
1: Doug Drexler, who did the uh, the effects, the shots of the Enterprise and so forth for Star Trek Continues. You know, one of the things he said to Vic when Vic approached him to work on the show, and Doug has won Emmys and Oscars, and he's worked on Star Trek movies and various Star Trek series. But the one thing he said is, I want it to look like the original show. I don't want to do anything that they couldn't have done on the original show. Well, it looks a little bit better because each season Star Trek was on, the effects got better, but they were using the enterprise was 11 feet, two inches long. It was a gigantic miniature. And I think it looks better. When I, when I watched the original show, I like it better than the way it looked in next generation or anything else, because that was CGI. And when you see a real miniature, a real ship, that the camera's going by, it's tangible. You feel, you, yeah. It doesn't feel like it's animation. It feels real. Yeah. And, and I, so what Doug wanted to do is he said, look, we're, you know, I want it to be faithful to the original show. It'll feel like it's the fourth season. It'll feel like it looks better than the first, second, and third, but it's within the realm of what they could have done.
4: Absolutely. And, uh, and that's and then, one of the things then, I love know, about it. And then you know what, Mark? After, after uh, Doug stepped away from our series about episode six, uh, a, an amazing VFX artist named Mark Bell came in and took over, <clears throat> and he studied all of the photos that had recently been taken of the brand-newly restored original model that's at the Smithsonian. And my, my uh, instructions to both Doug and Mark were, make this look like a model. Make wow. it look like a physical, plastic, wooden model because that's what the original was make it look as much like that as possible and i would defy most people to watch our series and when that ship flies by you know you you would i don't think most people would a lot of people asked us well did you use a model you know is that a model (laughs) no pgi just made it look like one
3: but see that's what's that's what's so beautiful about it i love the fact that you've kept everything as like you said as close as possible to what it the original one was like it's just like when they try to redo movies i nothing irritates me more because they think cgi and all these special effects are better than the originals and when in fact a lot of times the movie ends up suffering oh right? yeah
1: yeah I agree. well when you watch spectacles when you watch a movie like lawrence of arabia mm-hmm. you know and and they've got thousands of extras on thousands of horses you know out there and then you watch a remake or a movie that is about that time, and it's it's all this CGI mm-hmm. instead of real actors and real horses and real explosions. And to me, it doesn't look anywhere near as good. It uh, doesn't, you know, no. the, the movie making uh, of the past, uh, when it was a good movie and it had a good budget, you just can't top it. And, uh, and one of the great things, uh, it was the third episode, I think, of Star Trek Continues, uh, Fairest of Them All, which was picked up where an original episode, Mirror, Mirror, had left off. And we screened those uh, in an in a auditorium and did a little break in between the first two. So we screened Mirror, Mirror, which was filmed in 1967,
2: mm-hmm. okay.
1: and then took a break. And everybody came back in uh, 20 minutes later, and the lights went down. And the screen lights up, the big screen lights up, and it's fairest of them all, which picks up where the other episode left off. And there was this collective gasp through the room because the lighting was the same, the sets were the same, the, the clothes, the actors look a lot like the actors in the original show. Not identicals, not twins, but but <laughs> they carry themselves the right way. And within a minute or two, you're thinking you're watching those original guys and I just remember that gasp because everybody was going oh my god you know it, it's like it's picking up right where it left off and by the way speaking of one of the actors uh take a good look at uh Scotty and you go yeah. man he yeah. looks like and sounds <laughs> like does. the original Scotty that's Scotty's son that's Chris no. is it
0: really I didn't realize yeah. that okay wow. okay but you know uh you, you know Mark you touch on something you know go ahead Vic
4: Go ahead. I'm sorry. I I was just going to say. What uh, another thing is that we've got all of our episodes had guest stars from iconic television franchises. Not just Star Trek. We've had guests from Star Trek. We've also had guests from Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Buck Rogers, Doctor Who, Incredible Hulk, Buffy, Farscape, um, The Expanse. We've had uh, a lot of really great.
1: Guest stars in all of our episodes
0: as well. That's wow. fantastic. Yeah, and, Vic. And Vic and what I was going to say.
1: Some of the original Star Trek writers too, like judy okay. Burns came on.
0: Right. Whoa. Good. Yeah. The one thing I was going to say about uh, Vic there that uh, Mark had kind of touched on as far as the the acting, Vic, I noticed that um, that you picked up a lot of the same mannerisms that William Shatner portrayed as Captain Kirk, and so I was like, oh, this is this really is pretty seamless.
4: Well, I appreciate you saying that. I love Bill Shatner. I loved Captain Kirk when I was a 9, 10, 11-year-old, and my parents had just divorced, and my mom and I moved into a little apartment. We didn't even have any living room furniture, and we had a black-and-white 19-inch television that sat on the floor because we didn't have a table for it. And I would come home from school every day, and I discovered this show after school one day, 5 o'clock, Pittsburgh television station and I would lay on the floor and watch it and I was so inspired and there was this you know there was this captain who was brave and handsome and smart he led his ship and he cared about his friends and they went on these adventures and Captain Kirk very much became a a father figure to me in many ways and a role model so when I decided to make Star Trek Continues the last thing I ever wanted to do would be to satirize or or parody somehow um, Bill Shatner, but more pay tribute and pay homage to that character.
0: No, that's fantastic. So we have a a couple of questions here from the chat room that I want to get to before we uh, wrap it up. Um, Robert Hanna was wondering what your thoughts are on the newer JJ Abrams uh, Star Trek films.
4: Mark.
1: Um, They're very entertaining. I've seen them. I enjoy them a lot. Uh, But they don't top the original for me, no matter how much money they have in them, uh, no matter how big screen they are, because um, the characters aren't quite faithful and they act a little too much like comic book characters for me. And I'll I'll just mention one scene in particular, the one where uh, Spock is fighting Khan, which I think was the second or third J.J. Abrams movie. And there's a fight scene between them, and it goes on for about 20 minutes, and they're throwing each other through the air and slamming against walls and getting up and dusting themselves off and coming back into the fight. And this is something superheroes do. I mean, I, I don't care if it's a Vulcan or, a, or a, um, a genetically improved human that are having the fights. You throw somebody against a brick wall like that, they're going to break bones. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that was one thing Gene Roddenberry was always against. And there's uh, memos in these books that I did where he talks to the writers. And he says, I don't want to do what they're doing on Mannix. I don't want somebody to come in and slug Captain Kirk on the head. Uh, occasionally we'll do it if we have to for plot purposes, but I don't want to be doing that every week because I was a police officer and I was in the, uh, world war II. And when somebody gets hit on the head, you're talking concussion, you're talking brain damage, you're talking all kinds of things. And I don't want kids watching to think that you can break things over somebody's head and it's okay. So when I see that kind of filmmaking, it feels a little irresponsible to me, even though it's entertaining and it is entertaining. But I do have that, a little problem with that approach to these great characters. Yeah. Um,
4: for me, uh, they were very entertaining, very well executed, technically, you know, technically beautifully executed films. But they were about an inch deep. Right. Yeah. They just had no real depth. You didn't really care much about the characters. Um, you know, my feeling is they were great. They were great. Up, they were great movies, but. You could have called them anything. You didn't have to even call them Star Trek. It could have been any generic sci-fi movie. Right. And uh, the best thing that I could say about them is if they encouraged a younger generation to walk out of the theater and go, hey, wasn't there a Star Trek back then? <laughs>
2: Inspire
0: <laughs> them to go they, watch the older stuff, yeah.
4: Exactly. Yeah. That's that's my hope, is that it, that it encouraged a whole new generation of people to check out what started this phenomenon in the first place. Yeah. Very true.
0: So Betty Lange was wondering, did the space program of the 60s have a big influence on Star Trek?
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, one thing he did that nobody else did, Irwin Allen certainly wasn't doing it, uh, he sent all the scripts before they would film them. He would send them over to NASA. He would send them to the RAND Corporation. He would send them to JPL, which is part of NASA, Jet Lab Propulsion, uh, Jet Propulsion Lab. And, uh, uh, and he would get notes from the scientists and because he wanted them to be able to watch the show. He didn't want them to laugh at the show. Right. And so everyone at NASA was into it. Big time, wow. And they would give him notes. And again, you see those in my books and so forth. So he was running it by all these people to get their impression. There's a picture in one of my books where you see all the technicians uh, at mission control during one of the Apollo flights, and they're all wearing Spock ears. <laughs> <laughs> which they did yeah. for the picture. They wouldn't be wearing them otherwise, but the fact that they did that, uh, they, NASA filmed some second unit stuff for the original Star Trek, and when they did Star Trek, the motion picture, and there was V'ger, which yeah, is Voyager, Voyager. Yeah. they used Voyager. They used the mock-up, not the one that was shot into space because mm-hmm. that, that was out there already. It had right. just been <laughs> shot out there a couple of years earlier, but this was one of the, 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 the mock-up for it. And NASA... Uh, loaned it to paramount with nice. a lot of insurance to use in that movie that's not a movie prop that's that's wow. voyager
2: wow i didn't realize so that.
1: wow. that's Great. the that's the type of support they were getting from from nasa
3: do you think that uh, and this would be, be a short question but everything that i'm learning about gene roddenberry from you guys is that not only was he a pioneer um, in fighting against racism and stereotypes but he was also a pioneer that might be overlooked today in regards to responsibility in television when, yeah. it comes to, when it comes to, you know, what our kids are seeing, the accuracy of it, and this, that, and the other. Do you think that, you know, this is something that people even today could learn from?
1: Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Judy Burns told me that my books, and she's uh, really liked the first three. We're up to f- the fifth book now, is where, which is covers Star Trek, the motion picture. But the, the first three are the original series. And she said those should be required reading in colleges for all potential screenwriters because Roddenberry's memos are so incredible. Uh, not not just from a writer's point of view, telling them how to write better scripts and how to work better with his characters and so forth, but talking about the themes and talking about violence. And he was not against violence. He said, you know, we need violence if it's used responsibly,
2: Yes. you
1: know, because violence can teach us what to do, what not to do and everything else. He just didn't like it when it was just put in there for cheap entertainment and ex. and he writes some of these some of these letters and memos he writes i mean are just i should say they should be published but they are in my books <laughs> <They should> But <be, laughs> they should be experienced they should be read and experienced i mean teachers should be reading those to their students and i taught screenwriting at a college in la and i would read those memos because i said i've never heard a producer talk better about what needs to go into a script and what doesn't need to go into a script and Gene Roddenberry. Wow.
0: That's fantastic. Um, Well, guys, I mean, we're really at the uh, end of the show here, last couple minutes. So um, I do have everybody's links down in the descriptions, but um, if you guys can go ahead and let everybody know where they can find you, your work, where they find you in the Internet, Star Trek Continues, all that, Um, Mark, your book.
1: Well, the books are uh, easy to find. Uh, They're everywhere. They're at Amazon. They're at uh, uh, Barnes & Noble. But um, the best place to go is direct to the publisher. You not only get the best price, but those come signed by the author. Oh, And they can even be inscribed. So just go to com. It'll take you to uh, 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 the website uh, that my publisher has for these books. And the audio book that Vic has done, uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about that, but that's there, too. And that is 28 hours long, and it has a cast of 80 people, including a lot of the original Star Trek people on there. And Vic is the primary reader. He reads all my parts. And you can get that at theseofthevoyagesbooks.com as well. Vic?
4: Well, let me just say, Mark's books are extraordinary. And when I when I read the audiobook, <clears throat> when I recorded the audiobook for his his first season one book, I learned even so much about the series and the behind the scene making of the episodes that I didn't know. And I found it fascinating. And not only that, but people who have, who already read the printed books, um, got a hold of the, of the audio book recording. And they're like, I feel like I didn't even read the book. Like it's, it's all fresh and new again because we have people reading the voices of Roddenberry and Justman and Nimoy. And you know everybody that participated, the the critics and the network people. So when you listen to it, you feel like you're, you're You almost feel like you're listening to a radio drama. You know, you you almost feel like you're sitting in the room with Gene Roddenberry, hearing in his own voice him, you know, reading his own memos to the staff and, and stuff. So the audiobook is, is wonderful, and and Mark's Mark's books were amazing, and I hope you guys will check that out. Um, As I said earlier, StarTrekContinues.com. You can see all of our episodes there. You can see dozens of behind-the-scenes features and bloopers and making-of videos, all kinds of great stuff. And it's It's free. It's
1: free. free.
4: Every single bit of it. In fact, we've even put up there for Christmas last year, our Christmas gift to the planet Earth was we put up DVD and Blu-ray images that you can download and burn your own DVDs and Blu-rays of our whole series. Oh, nice. In fact, I even put all the artwork up there, so you can print your own inserts and disc art. So all of that is at StarTrekContinues.com. Wow. And, uh, and then me personally, um, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Um, I, I, I'm doing a lot of uh, event appearances this year. Um, I may be coming to an event near you. I've got several events lined up this year around the country. And like I said, if you're interested in walking through the soundstage that we built, that is within inches of spot-on accuracy to the original series soundstage, you can go to neutralzonestudios.com. We did a we did a, <clears throat> a one day fan appreciation in January, and three weeks ago we did a we did a one day fan appreciation in February. And then we're doing another one March 21st, and we're doing another one April 18th. And it is free as well.
0: The magic word
4: here is free, 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 because we just want to celebrate Star Trek. We're not looking to get rich or capitalize or profit. We just want to share these beautiful sets. And I'll tell you, I get no greater thrill than to walk with people in there and stand with them when those turbo lift doors open. And they are looking down the corridor, and they tear up and walk through there with their jaws hanging open. I'm still trying to That's get awesome. Mark Cushman down there. But uh, <laughs> but I'm telling you, there is nothing like it in the world, and I love sharing it with people. So anyone interested in that, go to neutralzonestudios.com. Check out the information there. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah.
3: I just went and systematically liked all y'all's pages and sent friend requests. So. <laughs>
1: Thank you, Vanessa.
3: I I can't wait. This is wonderful. You're bringing back my childhood. I appreciate it.
4: Oh, thank you. Thank you.
1: Well, it's been a lot of fun, Mike. Thank Thank you very much, Vanessa. Thank
3: you. And I
1: hope your listeners enjoyed a different type of show tonight because we're into the stuff they're into as well.
0: This fantastic. is wonderful. This is definitely, I loved yeah, it. breath of fresh air. A, a lot of uh, our viewers were really enjoying it. So, uh, yes, definitely. Uh, absolutely appreciate having you guys on. You, you're both doing fantastic work and keep it up.
4: Thank you. And once you watch the series, drop me an email. And let me know what you think.
1: Absolutely.
0: absolutely. We'll do. We'll do.
4: And, and, and give her my email address too. So, I will. please drop me a note once you've seen them. I sure will.
1: Thank you, guys.
0: All right. You guys bye have everybody. a great night. Take care. Bye bye. Bye
4: so much you guys thanks thank you I the moment I down the rabbit hole.